Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is George Macharco, host of DC Entrepreneur here on WERA 96.7 FM. In the studio today, we've got Amelia Friedman. Amelia is a co-founder of Hatch. Uh, it's an app development software as a service company here in Washington, D.C. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, Amelia, you're an Arlington resident and a native to the area. Thanks for dropping by Arlington Independent Media. We always <laughs> love to have people from the area. Um, talk to me about Hatch. So uh, how did Hatch develop? What was the idea behind it? How did you find your co-founder? And how did you decide to work on this particular project as a startup? We we launched the company in, uh, I think, wow, this is like coming up on our two-year anniversary because we launched it in mid-August of 2015, the idea being uh building almost like a Squarespace or a WordPress, but for application development. Um, And it has since evolved into a totally different animal. Um, I had the opportunity to participate in um, a program called Halcyon. So it's a fellowship for social entrepreneurs. And um, there I met all these unbelievable founders of uh, nonprofits and um, for-profits with a social mission And one of them was working on software for sustainability. And we became really good friends, started working on small projects together. So uh, about six months after we met, um, he had he pitched me on this idea that was really uh, inspired by the software that he was developing for a sustainability startup, um, whereby you could basically launch apps to the app store and make live design changes. So that might not sound really crazy and cool for most folks, but when you're an app developer, every time you want to make a change to your mobile app, you have to go through this resubmission process and it takes time. It's really slow. You have to wait for review. And so this idea of being able to say, okay, I don't want this to be colored green anymore. I want it to be blue was actually pretty cool and in, in, in the way that he was doing it was pretty revolutionary. So um, he approached me he was and he, he said we should turn this into something and I thought you know this guy, um, his name is Param Jaggi, is uh, the smartest person I've ever met and I think he's amazing and there's nobody else I'd rather work with and I jumped and that was uh, a little under two years ago now and um, haven't looked back since. So now uh, one of the things that you promise with your company is that you can get your app submitted to the app store in less than two weeks. Can you talk to me about how you're able to do that development in such a short iteration? Um, for for those customers that we make that commitment to, we're actually not building their app. We've already pretty much built it. What we're building is we're building software that allows people to instantly deploy to the app stores. The reason we say that there's a delay is because the app store has a review process. And sometimes... Um, sh- You'd be shocked to know that it's actually run – there's a fair amount of it that's automated, but there's also a, a human portion of the iOS review process. So there's – sometimes an app will take a while to get reviewed. So we actually deploy it instantly. So if you go into our software and you're like, okay, I'm going to build um, – we have a, a customer right now who's building a, a storytelling app um, for, for a large global nonprofit. And – uh, they go in, they pick their template, which in their case is a video storytelling template. They change colors, they change the layout, they put in their logo, they might turn off, 
turn on and off some small features, and then they just hit submit. And at that point, it's all automated. So um, we we instantly submit to the App Store, the the Google Play Store, and then also um, push to web. And can you talk to me about the customers that you you try to bring in with Hatch? Is there a specific type of clientele that you want to work with? Is it uh, you know socially focused social entrepreneurs, or is it really anyone that wants to develop a, an application? Yeah, I love that you asked that question uh-huh. because we haven't actively tried to focus on social ventures. Okay. But I think by virtue of my networks and Parm's networks mm-hmm. and the way that we talk about our mission, which is really around democratizing software and making software really affordable, um, uh, we've ended up working with a lot of really great social ventures with really awesome missions. Um, uh, the nonprofit I was just talking about, Ashoka, is a global nonprofit that supports thousands of entrepreneurs in, in building um, social ventures um, based here in Arlington. So we're building storytelling apps for them that connect their community. Or they're, they're building them for themselves, really. And um, we're working with great um, great company that's doing really innovative work in, in healthcare. Um, actually, a couple companies that are doing really innovative uh, work in, in healthcare. Um, so we've, we've had the opportunity to work on these really awesome projects um, that, I mean, just because we have an awesome team and an awesome product, I'm already really excited to go into work. But then having these customers that are really building something that um, could make a, a real positive impact is huge. And uh, we've, we've really been really lucky with that. Um, when we think about what types of customers we like to work with, I think when people hear, okay, you can get your app up really quick, you can do it way more affordably, they think, okay, this is going to be the entrepreneur, this is going to be for somebody who's building like the next Snapchat. That's less our customer because if you're building something that is, um, if you're building something, you're trying to figure out new features, you're trying to iterate, um, you're trying to build something that's truly novel in terms of software, um, we're, we're more of a template-based system. So we're, we're looking for folks that um, – are you know have have an existing business, but maybe there's there's some way that software can make what they're doing more efficient, and they, they know what they want. Um, they they might be trying to collect data from within the field. So we're working with folks that um, are collecting data from uh, from from different from different folks in different places and aggregating it through mobile. Um, uh, you know, Ashoka is a great example of an organization that has a massive global footprint, but just has some way that software can improve their company and, and, and build on their community. Um, we've worked with some entrepreneurs we've, we've, and, and we love working with them. Their needs are sometimes a little bit more, um, more nuanced um, and, and they, they, they typically are looking to like iterate really quickly and have new features built out really quickly, um, which, which we do. But we definitely feel like our sweet spot is these, these really great companies for which they have an awesome value proposition. They're really good at it, but maybe software isn't. They don't see software as their core competency, so their app isn't their company. It's just one part of it. But you know, we're like I said, we started the company a little under two years ago. We're really young, um, so the vision, the real vision for us, and what gets us really excited is creating a product where anybody could go in and they could, they could really build something awesome. They could they, they they come in with a great vision for software, they pick their features, they modify everything and they deploy whatever. Um, and you know, every day we get closer and closer to that point. Uh, and you know, I think that's a big part of what keeps us going. So it's almost like a turnkey approach to software development then. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, you know, the the larger vision is not just doing these 
uh, iOS, Android, and web apps, but also being able to expand to um, other other uh, basically UIs on the same backend. So if you're building, say, you're like Airbnb for cats or whatever, right now you can build through us with like iOS, Android, and web. But down the line, if you're if you're theoretically the same backend could be connected to a chatbot or connected to VR or connected to Alexa. Um, so, you know, our real vision is democratizing software development, making software really accessible and making it possible for anyone to to build their, their dream, build their vision, um, you know, regardless of the medium. Um, so now you have funding from Y Combinator. Can you just talk to me about your participation in the Y Combinator program? Yeah, that was super awesome opportunity. So um, for those who aren't familiar, uh, Y Combinator is an accelerator out in the Bay Area. It's funded um, some really incredible companies. Um, uh, Airbnb is one. I mean, they, their, their market cap is for all of their companies is in the, the many, many billions. And I don't, I don't know how much that is now, but they funded hundreds of companies. Um, so last summer, we were able to participate in their fellowship, which was uh, a program that they started to work with earlier stage companies because they had built this really powerful reputation for themselves, and 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 they were realizing that they uh, that the companies that they got to work with were generating you know a million dollars in revenue. So they wanted to work with companies like ours, and at that point we were totally pre-revenue, and be able to really support and incubate them. So um, they gave us funding and a lot of mentorship and, and support. Um, and, uh, really kicked our butt sometimes and were, uh, telling us that we needed to, to work harder, do better and, and telling us all the ways that we could do that. Um, and, uh, it was, it was a really awesome opportunity, not only because the mentors and the folks that run the program are so brilliant and so experienced, but also because it was just this great global community. So there were 50 companies from around the world, 10,000 applied and, and, and all, and they were all there. We're all still on a Slack channel together. We're all still collaborating together. Um, so I, I say to any entrepreneur, when you're starting, figure out where you can find those communities, figure out where you can find those mentors. Um, and I've been really fortunate in DC that I've, I've been able to find many great communities of support and many great communities of mentors, but it was so, so it had such a positive impact on our company and on our morale to, to um, be invited into that one. So Hatch isn't the first startup that you've, you've founded. Um, well, I guess maybe it's the first tech startup that you've, yeah. you've helped co-found. Um, but before that, you were one of the minds behind the student language exchange when you were at Brown University. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah. So that was such an organic experience. Um, I, I was actually in large part inspired by a community here in D.C. There's something called the Global Language Network um, that uh, teaches lots and lots of languages. Um, and I thought it was, it was so interesting that you could learn like, I, I mean, sometimes there were languages that I couldn't even, I've never even heard of. And, and it was all by native speakers. And um, I was looking around on my campus and thinking like, there are so many awesome people from places that I'll probably never visit. Um, and uh, who speak languages that uh, I'll never again have an opportunity to learn. So I started helping people training them up, working with professors to build programs in these underrepresented languages, so like Bengali, Thai, Swahili, um, languages like Zonko, the language of Bhutan, languages that people hadn't even heard of. And um, my junior year, uh, I hit a problem that a lot of founders hit, which is I had run out of money and I I felt like I needed more money to, to build this to be more powerful, more impactful at Brown. 
And so the dean I talked to, he was like, you should talk to this guy, Alan. He runs our social entrepreneurship program. And my response was, I'm not an entrepreneur. We're just like doing this like little program. And uh, he like essentially forced me into Alan's office. And um, uh, best one of the best things that's ever happened to me, um, uh, meeting him. Uh, I was I was uh, awarded a fellowship for social entrepreneurs in the in the in, in, in the university, and they really pushed me to think about like how could I leverage this platform that we had built, which that at that point had spawned independent social ventures, had um, uh, introduced people to parts of the world that they ended up working in or deciding to live in, or given them really great uh, access for really cool research projects they were working on. I was this, all these like totally random things I never would have expected um, through a language program. Um, and uh, they challenged me to think, okay, we, we've had these small successes here. How could we think bigger? So uh, when I graduated, we were operating in a couple cities um, in large part uh, because of, of folks like Alan and folks in that, in that community there. Um, and then uh, also from, because of really awesome people I had the opportunity to work with. Um, and I decided to go full time. So um, we grew. We grew to operating in, in seven cities and running programs in, in thirty plus languages. And um, it was it was it was a really it was a really great experience of kind of figuring out how to build how to build something how to how to how to train up people how to how to create um, awesome programs um, and. Through that, I I started uh, doing some. We we were building some tech, and so there were parts of it that I was managing. There were parts of it that I started building in small ways, um, and it was just an incredible learning experience. But so, but you weren't studying computer science or no? Like I was that. studying Brazilian literature. Okay, so that's yeah. quite a switch. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> but I think that says something about the openness and accessibility of uh, working in in the tech world is that they like to bring people in that have different uh, backgrounds and education um, because they really can innovate, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that that's one of the reasons that um, boot camps like General Assembly have been so successful is that there are a lot of people that. Some of the people that are most successful in our industry are people that have um, uh, switched industries or, or worked in different industries. And, you know, I think that part of the reason why people invest in um, uh, repeat founders is, isn't just because maybe they have industry experience, but it's also that there are a lot of things that you learn building any sort of organization. My, my last organization was a nonprofit. It was revenue generating, but, you know, completely different tax structure, right? Sure. Um, uh, but there are so many things that I learned from building that and managing people and dealing with legal issues. I mean, all sorts of random things that you deal with building any business um, that I feel have been really amazing um, and uh, in terms of setting us up for success with Hatch. Um, But I think in any industry, diversity is so important. Um, Diversity breeds creativity. Um, diversity breeds the, all of the right kinds of conflict that challenge people to be better. Um, and tech, the tech industry is no exception. So there's a really interesting story about how you helped fund uh, the startup. Uh, and that goes back to uh, last year, 2016, uh, when the presidential election was going on. And you uh, had created a Cards Against Humanity um, political game that uh, amazingly took off and made $70,000 uh, just as you had started printing these cards, or I think it was before you printed the cards, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally insane uh, little story. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, um, 
I think I, I talked about one of the the points of transition in my last my last venture as running out of money. We hit that point too with Hatch. We were in January of, of 2016. We had like negative money. Um, totally had drained our personal bank accounts, which I mean didn't have much because we were so young. But um, it was still, you know, we were really we were like, how are we going to keep going? We really believe in this, and we thought, how can we make money really fast right now? Like, what is it that people are talking about? Like, what is it that where is that opportunity? And this is back when the presidential election was really, really funny. Like the the everyone was sitting up and like watching all of the debates where there are like twenty eight people on stage. Okay, there were like ten, but it was it was it was so it was so hysterical. I mean, and I guess I feel bad saying this now because I know that you know that election has been devastating for for or it's been you know really emotional for a lot of people. Um, but we um, we saw it as a really great opportunity and um, uh, took hold of that. So. Um, uh, there's this card game called, um, Cards Against Humanity. It's like a word association game that's, um, very politically incorrect, uh, kind of built to make people a little bit uncomfortable. And so we, we built a game similar to that. We just took quotes, things that people had said. Um, and there were so many of those that were just inappropriate not enough to be really funny these and, are things the candidate said oh yeah the candidate okay. said i mean direct I, quotes yeah, yeah. I, like i won't repeat any of them because like <laughs> most of them are like at least pg-13 but um you could do a whole new version for this year <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> not touching that um <laughs> but uh basically we were we, we we came up with a few cards we printed it on um my parents printer in their house and we like cut them out took pictures of them and put them on a website and um, I emailed probably like 100 reporters and was like, hey, like, here's a card game, essentially. And uh, we got a few media hits and uh, totally took off. Um, uh, there was there was uh, one day where we did like $15,000 in sales in a day. Um, it just went super viral. We were trending nationally on Facebook. Um, and uh, so to your point, we had a ton of money sitting in a Stripe account because we hadn't even created like an entity yet. We didn't have an LLC for it. Um, we certainly did not have a bank account. Uh, Stripe is like a PayPal competitor. So it's like a place that collected cash that developers build on top of. And uh, worst of all, we didn't have a card game. So uh, and at that point, we, we were like, OK, we have to come up with 250 cards. We have to figure out how we're going to print them. We're going to figure out we have to figure out how we're going to ship them to people. And um, Super Tuesday was fast appro- approaching. We told people that we'd got, we'd get it to them by Super Tuesday. Um, it was it was every part of it was just a total sprint. Um, at one point, uh, we we ended up working with a, a printer in um, in Texas in Dallas. My co-founder's from Plano, right outside. So he flew to Dallas to ship earlier, and he had his grandmother putting shipping labels on the card games. His whole family was in the back of a budget truck. It was the most ratchet, amazing experience ever. Um, and uh, we were able to fund ourselves for a little while, um, and even. More importantly than that, and I think this kind of speaks to my point about repeat founders, um, we were able to go into our interview for Y Combinator and say, like, we've had this little success where we've been able to um, build something that people have loved. We've been able to get people to buy it. We've been able to ship them out. And it was something that they were really impressed by. It was something that our, our then future, now current investors were really impressed by. And it really showed people that we knew how to work well together um, and that we 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 were able to to build things and to create together and be creative together. Um, so it was it was definitely an interesting experience. 
Do you think it was the media exposure that you got from that or the money that you were able to raise from that or just the product itself that um, made Y Combinator kind of sit up and say, hey, that's interesting? So um, have you ever heard the Airbnb story, how they first started? Yes. I think that that was a big part of it. So Mm -hmm. Airbnb, um, when they first started, it was um, the Obama-McCain election in, in that era. And they were in a similar place that they didn't have any money. And they kind of went through a similar thought process. They were like, okay, like people are watching this election. So they created limited edition Obama-O's, which were Cheerios in a box with Obama's face on it. Um, A little bit more nuanced, but not quite, not, not, not very much so. And then uh, uh, Captain McCain's, which were the same thing with Captain Crunch. And they sold, I think, $40,000 worth of cereal. Um, and then that year it was like 40, their, their P&L was like $40,000 in cereal and like $2,000 in room rentals or something totally ridiculous like that. <laughs> um, my co-founder likes to say, yeah. well, they did $40,000 or now, and now are like worth X billion. So right. we did, we did a couple times that. So we're going to be two times that. <laughs> um, yeah. but, uh, I think that a lot of, a lot of investors, a lot of folks in our space look for pattern recognition and like, mm-hmm. wh- what do you do when you run out of money? Do you sit there and kind of give up or do you think okay like what can we do how can we keep going like we really believe in this we're going to make it work um so i think it's all of those things i i, I think that um that uh we were able to show that we were capable of building something we were capable of figuring out how to market it we were capable of of um of fulfilling i mean that's a big thing like a lot of people can sell but then like you know we had, we had done all these sales we hadn't created a card game we hadn't we had to figure out all the logistics of shipping so for all those reasons, I think it, it reflected pretty positively on us. Yeah, so there's really one more than one way to bootstrap. I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily always have to come down to funding the business out of your own uh, bank accounts. It can come down to creating some other um, product or service that helps uh, leverage the idea that you have. Um, and I think that's really interesting um, to, to think about because um, I think most people, whenever they hit a wall when it comes to their startup, they just kind of keep moving in the same direction. But I think that also talks about how why a lot of people have success with pivots. Whenever they find that something else works, they go with that and the energy and the momentum are there and then it ends up becoming kind of its own uh, startup in a sense uh, on its own. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we've we've done every kind of funding. We've done draining the bank accounts. We've done investor money. We uh, figured out how we could get early revenue on a, on a product, how we could get people to pay for it before we'd built it. Um, and we also sold card games. So I think it's, it, it, there, there's a certain amount of creativity and then there's a certain amount of just like, keep, keep asking, keep growing, keep trying to figure it out. Um, and, uh, if you're onto something and if your if your vision is, is, is something that's powerful in the world, um, then I think, I mean, I won't say that we, at this point we haven't built a a billion dollar company. So I'm, absolutely underqualified to say this but i like to believe that if you're if you stick to your mission you stick to your vision and you really believe in something great um and you uh are gritty uh it eventually will work out um because you can you can you can pivot as long as you and you can understand how to pivot as long as you're you are continuing to pivot closer towards that vision um and and able to really understand what that looks like for you now you're involved with a lot of different organizations here in dc uh, one of which is the veneta project can you talk to me about your your work with Veneta? Yeah, um, it's been amazing uh, uh, working with that community. So um, there's a, a friend of mine, um, 
her name is, is Lauren. She actually, since we're on radio, I imagine some people are podcast listeners. She was followed on the second season of the Startup Podcast. Um, she uh, built this great company, um, uh, and uh, she was a, an advisor to me, also a Y Combinator alum. Um, uh, her company was called The Dating Ring, and um, I, I was talking to her about a lot of the challenges that I was facing, and um, uh, she recommended, she said that there was this organization, um, called Girls Raising that had been incredibly powerful for her and incredibly, uh, helpful to her in building her business. So, um, she connected me with the founder. Um, that was, it was pre-hatch, pre-meeting Parm even, um, uh, a woman named Vanessa Dawson. And what she was trying to do is she was trying to help female founders raise capital. So, um, uh, Raising that we know that women are underrepresented in tech. We know that there are challenges faced by them. Uh, a lot of them are currently in the media with Uber and the like. Um, uh, but what a lot of people don't know is that um, only three percent of venture capital goes to female-founded companies, um, and and only twenty percent goes to companies that have women on the executive leadership team. So that means that eighty percent of capital is going to all male founding teams. Um, so getting capital to female founders is, is a really huge problem. And that's what she was trying to work on. I thought what she was doing was awesome. So I asked her if there would be a way for us to do some of that in D.C. Um, long story short, the name Girls Raising did not fly in this community. Uh, so we, we rebranded as Veneta. Um, actually, the whole organization rebranded. And um, we've been able to work with female founders in building their business. Um, we've been able to help them raise capital um, we've been able to give out capital through a prize competition we run. Um, and most of all, I think what's been most powerful for me is that we've given female founders a community in D.C. Uh, starting a company, running a company can be incredibly isolating. It can be incredibly exhausting. And um, uh, there are unique challenges that female female founders face that maybe we aren't always super comfortable talking about with just anyone. Maybe we feel that there's there's a certain type of person that might understand and sympathize better, and that that type of person might be another female founder. Um, so, you know, there have been a lot of other small organizations that have that have or s- small communities that have been spawned out of Veneta, um, uh, dinner groups and the like, and and all of that has been really powerful to see. So, actually, last month I um, handed over the reins to new leadership. I am no longer running Veneta in DC. I'm still a super active. I'm still on the board, super active member of the community. But at the time that I left, we had worked with um, uh, we had worked with uh, about 150 founders. We had uh, helped a few founders raise um, a few million, and uh, I'm really excited that the community there is so strong and so supportive that it. I can confidently say that it's just the beginning. Well, any last thoughts you'd like to leave us with? You know, I I I, I like to say that uh, if for folks that are thinking about starting something or building something. Uh, it's, it's such an, if you have the opportunity to do it, do it because worst, worst case, it doesn't work out and you've learned a ton. Um, worst case, it doesn't work out and you've met a lot of great people. Uh, worst case, it doesn't work out and you move on. And, uh, there, there are very few opportunities that we have in our lives to really just go for it. And when, when you do, you should take it. Excellent. Well, again, that was Amelia Friedman, co-founder of Hatch. Thanks for joining us today here in the studio. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll catch you next time here on DC Entrepreneur. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog. 
If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode. And thanks for listening.